Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace, and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. It's not just a series on fasting per se. In each case study that we've dealt with up to this point, there's been the unearthing of things that God, the Holy Spirit, has placed the searchlight on and has brought to light hidden things of the heart. We're living in a time of such seriousness, such seriousness. There is judgment happening globally in the global church. It's happening fast and it's happening furious. And if you are not spiritually perceptive, if you, if you reduce what you've been hearing to another one of Randall's many series that he has done with us over time, then you're completely missing the whole import, the gravity and the seriousness of what we are dealing with right now. This is a day of great fine-tunement. God is judging the house of God. God would raise up reformers like Ezra, like Nehemiah, like Daniel in his own time and day, and they would address issues relative to a dysfunctional church. They would pray and they would fast because they were gripped passionately about the issues that assailed them in their time. When they saw how far removed the people are from God's eternal principles, when they say how, how far the breach has been in place and how wider it has gone through time, they wept, they sat, they mourned, they prayed and fasted out of a deep burden for the glory and for the image of God to be restored in their time. Their passion and their concern was not so much about their own private state as much as it was about God's reputation in the earth at that point in time. When you examine the content of Daniel's prayer, Daniel 9, I think, when you examine the content of Nehemiah's prayer, Nehemiah chapter 2, when you examine the content of Ezra's prayer, yeah, in Ezra chapter 8 and part of chapter 7, you will see how that they are solely fixated upon the representation of God in the earth and where that is inaccurate because the people of God have left the law of God, left God's principles, adopted a lifestyle which for some would go back years and years and years before that has now in their time has simply consolidated and been entrenched. These reformers would look at the state of affairs and they would cry to God in prayer and fasting and say, God, these are your people. Like Israel said, these are your people. Nehemiah said, Lord, these are your people whom you redeemed by your great power. So Lord acts. In fact, in embedded within their prayer and fasting was not just a concern for the state of Zion, the state of the church in their day. Embedded in their prayer is, was a willingness to be used by God to redeem and remedy the situation. It's not just so much a concern that it's not sufficient that you are concerned 
about the matter. We are now getting to a place where we must not just be burdened, but we must trust God to be instrumental for the resolution of the things that concern us. This is the preserve of those who are truly apostolic. The true, apost- the true apostolic people, before they are used by God to remedy this, any situation that is dysfunctional, gone away from God's purposes, they are always gripped by a deep, passionate burden in prayer. Like Jesus won Calvary's victory in Gethsemane's garden. So too must apostolic people win the battle, not on the mountain, but in the garden. If you fail to be gripped by the passionate burden of the state of affairs for yourself, for your family, for the church, for a community, and if you fail to express that burden in prayer and fasting, you lack the means and the very methodology that is designed to empower you to be effective in the thing that you seek to remedy. So I want to remedy it, but Lord, let me become passionately burdened by it first and express this passionate concern in my prayer and fasting. Nehemiah prayed four months, completed the wall in 52 days. There was more time spent in prayer, less time on the field. Your your private prayer life is going to be the impetus you're going to need to be successful publicly. People want public success, but aren't willing to pay the price privately in prayer. And I want to encourage us. Um, I was so uh, uh, pleased, if you would, challenged and pleased. I attended Dr. Segi's forum on Thursday morning. I hadn't been for a long while because of my commitments. And so I was out of touch with what was the emphasis in those forums in the past few weeks. So I went in on Thursday, and to my surprise, they, um, recently they've been dealing with developing strength in prayer. They are developing strongly the fourth pillar of apostolic communities, which is prayer. Acts 2.42 says, They continued steadfastly in apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And we're very strong in doctrine. Fellowship to a degree, breaking of bread, yes. But prayers, is the church, are you in your private life a strong prayer warrior? Can you engage God about matters? Relative to his purposes in the kingdom, can you be a facilitator and the doer of God's will in your private closet, partnering with God and praying, Lord, let thy will be done on earth as it's done in heaven? Can God find you as that caliber of person who will truly pray and partner with him to see his will done? Will you be a prayer or will you forever be a spectator, stand on the periphery, and simply view things happen and not play an integral part in getting the job done? Now, I don't know about you, but I want to, it must be said of me, he played a significant role in facilitating God's will in the earth. It is said of David before he died that he served his generation by the will of God. You too must have the testimony, but until you develop the passionate burden in your prayer life, couple that with fasting, You will not be used as a key role player in the thing that you designed to be a part of its solution. Is this a tall order? Yes, it is. This is no ordinary church. You will be challenged consistently. 
Right? You know what? I asked Renee to read Isaiah 58 today. I asked Julene to read those chapters from Israel last week. And in the first part of Isaiah 58, you know what God said to Isaiah? Spare not, prophet. Don't hold back. Show Israel this. You do not hold back because God was... And you know what God said about Israel? In the, you read the verses there? There are people who seem like they desire to know my ways. Yet, there's the professing of wanting to know God's ways. But in action, there was a total departure away from the knowledge of God. And I have determined in my own heart, we will raise up a strong church. We will raise up a praying church. More so than ever before, now I'm committed. After knowledge of certain things this week, I am determined to raise up a pure church. A holy church. If you are still grappling with things of carnality, we will love you into holiness. But we will not compromise. We will not send you away, but I will not compromise God's standards simply to be your pal. And for simply to ensure that you come back next week. But rather have five people on fire, pure and holy, praying God's purposes will be done on the earth. And a people that is truly reflective of the image and the glory of God in the earth. Amen. And I've been hearing what God said to Isaiah, my son, my prophet, don't hold back. Show my people the error. Show my people the extent of departure away from my standards. Amen. And it's this that we are busy with. I shared with you most of this in this study last week. Tonight is simply going to be a summation of some principles of Ezra and his fast. Remember Ezra fasted twice in the book of Ezra. He fasted initially at the river Ahava, for a safe passage of the exiles that joined him after receiving leave of Babylon to go back to Jerusalem. He prayed for physical protection because the journey would be treacherous. The journey would take him four months. The king offered him an escort, but he refused, boasting that God will take care of him. Now, before he goes, he says, and he gathers those that would go with him, at the river Ahava, and the Bible says, we prayed and we fasted to the Lord, our God, that He would give us a safe, a safe passage. And it's true. And the next verse says, and the, we were heard of the Lord. Okay? God answered our prayer. And the Bible says, He saved us from several ambushments. So obviously on the journey, there were several attempts on Nehemiah and the group to destroy them. But the Lord God kept them. His testimony was, the good hand, like Nehemiah, the hand of the Lord God of heaven was on us. He comes to Jerusalem and he is appalled. I'm using the words of the New American Standard Version. When he sees the people, he is appalled at the state, the degree to which they have transgressed the law of God. Specifically, the issue of intermarriage is highlighted in the book of Nehemiah. When he sees how that they've married foreign nations, several of them are listed, which I will briefly talk about tonight. He says, no, no. You remember he was a scribe. Everyone say scribe. What is a scribe? The Bible says he was well studied in the law of Moses. 
He knows the Torah, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. He knows them back to front. He knows every law in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, from Genesis right um, to the fifth book, Deuteronomy. Now listen carefully. He sees, so when he confronts reality, he says, wow, there's flagrant disregard for very clearly stated laws in God's word. Specifically, the sin of intermarriage is highlighted. He's more so appalled because it seemed to him like leaders, he says the chief of the men, were the most unfaithful in this matter. Now, you know, when leaders sin, it opens up the gate for those led to be more prone to sin. If a leader is pure and holy before God, it confers like a sense of immunity over the people that he, that he leads. It's very serious today in leadership for leaders to live lives of integrity, uprightness of heart. It is said of David, for example, in Psalm 78 verse 72, it says that he, David, led them according to the integrity of his heart. And he guided them with skillful hands. This is David and Israel. The psalmist who wrote that psalm is commenting on David's life. And he says this about David. David would lead God's people. How? With integrity of heart. And someone, I got a long study on integrity, which I would planned to do with the brothers, but God hijacked the meeting and had his own way. But you know what? Integrity has many meanings. But a basic meaning is simply to do the righteous thing when no one in the physical, natural world is looking, but everyone in the, un, in the invisible, eternal realm is watching. No one on the physical planet is looking at you. But every eye is on you in the unseen world. And you still do the right thing. Tell your neighbor, do the right thing. So Nehemiah, uh, Ezra rather, is appalled at the state and the extent to which the nation had declined into immorality, marrying foreign nations. I want to encourage you. You might say, yes, Randolph, that is for you because you are a leader. So preach to yourself on that point. Yes, it's true, and I will do everything in my power to lead righteously, to live a life of absolute integrity before the Lord, so help me God. And to maintain my personal righteousness even in the dark. Where no one sees. The dark, physically, and the darkness of this mind. Where no man can see a man's thoughts. But to still be honest. And David said this in one of his Psalms. I have walked in my integrity within my household. Husbands, wives, maintain your integrity even within your house at home. Live an honest and a pure life. Be simple and be sincere. Be honest. Live a life of rectitude and circumspection before the Lord God. Those standards we will not compromise. Husbands, you are a leader. I'll say it again. Husbands, you're the head of your home. What you allow in your life, do not be surprised if it persists in your kids. Because you are the gate. You are the gate. I remind you, I lift up my voice like a trumpet, as I is told, and I declare to you, be very careful as to how you live. You are either the gateway for great curse, 
or the gateway to great blessing in your domain, of which you are leader of. Amen? I was so angry with the devil when Renee's illness. One time I held her, she was sleeping, but I held her, and I prayed. But I prayed almost, when I, I held her and, and in prayer, I was like, my intention in my mind was, I am covering. I am protecting. I will cover. Right? No intention of hell is going to succeed against my wife, in Jesus' name. That was my mind. You know? And I want to encourage you. Husbands, the Bible calls you a head. Being a head, you are a leader. Take responsibility over the state of affairs at home. If anybody comes to my home, they want to speak to who's in charge here. Who's the ultimate authority? Right? A man is the head of the wife, so is Christ the head of his, of his church, the Bible says. And so I have chosen to take personal responsibility for everything that happens at 33 Watsonia Road. If you're sitting next to a married man, tell him the buck stops with you. Ezra says, the leaders in this had been foremost in this unfaithfulness. Look at the bottom of your page. There's a verse, you know when he calls the leaders to repent? You know what, if you read Ezra 7, 8, 9, 10, it says this matter was so widespread, they make a suggestion to him, don't call everyone, call the leaders. Because we're in the season of the heavy rains, number one, and this matter is far too widespread for everybody to come forth. So Ezra, the suggestion is, let the leaders come forth because by a leader they represent a whole group. Not so? So leaders have a representational function. At the bottom of the page, Ezra 10.14. Let our leaders represent the whole assembly. Let all those in our cities who have, been, who have married foreign wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of each of the city until the fierce anger of our God on account of this matter has been turned away from us. What was Nehemiah again by occupation? Come on, talk to me. He was a scribe, right? A, sorry, Ezra. My mistake. Ezra was a scribe, right? So the scribal anointing was not a secretarial or administrative or writing book function. We think scribe is somebody who writes. His scribal grace was defined like this. He was well studied in the law of Moses. So a scribe in his day was one who could very accurately understand the law of God and also explain it to the people. I read to you Ezra 7.10. Why was he shown great favor by the king? And the king granted him a leave of absence. Go back with all of this wealth that I will give you and go and tend to the temple. Right? Service the temple. Make sure you buy all the items for the offerings and the sacrifices so the temple service could resume. Why? It says, for Ezra. The word for means because Ezra had did what? It's Ezra 7.10. It says, for Ezra had studied the law, obeyed it, and taught it. Three things. He studied the law, he obeyed it, and he taught it in, in Israel. This is way before he ever got to Jerusalem. While in Babylon he was doing this. What was he doing in Babylon? 
studying the law. Living it. And teaching it. Right? Now, and on account of that, great favor is shown, and he goes back. He sees the state, because he knows the law. He sees that leaders are foremost in transgression of, of intermarriage. Um, he is appalled. He weeps, and he fasts. And he, he, there's a prayer that you must study that he prays before the Lord God. While weeping, praying, and fasting, a certain company of people who also tremble, it says, at the word of the Lord. They come and they gather to him, and they join him. In this, a suggestion is then made to, to Ezra that he must arise. Everyone say arise. He must arise and be instrumental in rectifying the situation. Right? And to this he accedes. He administrates almost a massive divorce. The, the leaders come. And any leader who had married a foreign wife, he administrates that they divorced the woman. It was traumatic on a personal level because the scripture clearly says some of them had children. There were children involved. Now you think God is hard. It sounds like a very harsh thing. Eh? You know, I can, if I was making a movie of this day, what will you picture this as? People married for five years. Here's the man of God, the tribe of God coming and instituting a divorce. And this is a mess on a mass scale. The, the, the issue was so serious that God instructed Nehemiah with wisdom to administrate that any leader, and obviously all of Israel, who had married foreign wives, must separate himself from them. God was wanting to bring back purity to the nation. Now please understand me. I am not advocating divorce. Nobody must hear this tape and say, now I'm going out. And I'm planning my divorce because Randolph says so. It's on record in this tape. Randolph does not advocate divorce. Right? In fact, Paul has much to say about if a spouse is serving the Lord and has an unsaved spouse. Read it in Corinthians. Right? Um, I'm not advocating divorce. The Bible says God hates divorce. But this was a, was a, a case study that must be judged alone on its own merit. And it was a serious departure of, from the ways of God. It concerned intermarriage. Why was God so angry with the nation that they had violated the intermarriage commandment? God clearly said, no one from Israel must marry foreign nations. Clearly. Who started this breach? I did it last week. Solomon. And you can read, I'm going to read the scriptures on page 2. Solomon started this breach. David's son married foreign wives. Now you must remember in the era of the kings, all the kings after Solomon would also do likewise. Would also do likewise. When Ahab came on the scene, the Bible says, and it seemed like a light thing to him to marry Jezebel, who was the daughter of the king of Sidon, the Sidonians. Right? Outside. But it says, like what it says, it seemed like a trivial thing. What seemed light in his eyes was viewed very seriously by God. So you might sit there and say, oh, shame, isn't God harsh? No, God, in, in instituting through Ezra the separation of the men from foreign wives, he was trying to bring back the, the nation to purity because he wanted to preserve a holy seed. Everyone say holy seed. He wanted to preserve a holy seed.
He did not want mixture and the Samaritan spirit to be embroiled with, with the purity of the race that he was trying to bring forth. For from that line, the Messiah is still to come. So the line had to be kept pure, particularly in Judah, because from Judah the Messiah would flow. Not so. Now listen carefully. Last week I, I challenged our young people and those who are not married. Be careful in terms of who you court and who you marry one day. First Corinthians 6 says, do not be unequally yoked. You've got to be equally yoked. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Now this is a very serious issue. It's something that must be set as a law within the hearts of those that are not married. You cannot court or marry somebody that is not serving God. It's not the standard. Publicly, it is not acceptable. It's not something that I would water down to, make, to keep you here. Because, I mean, I think, what if one of those men of Judah loved this Amorite wife that he married 10 years ago? Ezra comes and says, hey, you violated seriously the law of God. Now separate from mine. We've got three children. Wasn't that traumatic? It was not based on preference. It was based on principle. You have your own preference. If you function by preference, you will be more prone to make mistakes. But if you function by principle, principle will protect you. Where preference will fail you. Become a young man and a young woman of, of, of principle. And let me just say this to you. Your feelings might be hurt. God will give you the grace to get over it and to overcome. There will be grace for it. The moment you say, Lord, I want to abide by your, by your principle. To Ahab, it seemed like a light thing they could marry someone outside of God's choosing. But I want to implore again. I want to scar your minds. Everyone says, scribe. When, Neil, when Ezra comes, he wants to inscribe the law of God onto the heart and the mind of the people. I said to you last week to make it like a warning system. When you inscribe the principle on Anthony's heart and mind, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So Anthony, when Anthony chooses a young lady, it's, it's a principle that's indelibly, irretractably, imposed upon the heart and the mind. So what happens when this mutarin beauty comes your way? And she's titillating and tantalating you. Right? Your flesh might say, it's something to be preferred, but my principle tells me it's an area I cannot go. If you're going to be focused on your feelings, you'll be led astray. But if, you're, if you function by principles, principles will always safeguard you. Amen? Function by principle and not by, and not by preference. Look at page 3. I shared in brief this with you last week, but I typed it out and I included it in the study for emphasis. Genesis 27 and verse 46. Rebekah said to Isaac, I am tired of living. In the King James it reads, I am weary of my life because of the daughters of who? Of Heth, the sons of Heth. 
If Jacob takes a wife from the daughters of Heth like these, from the daughters of the land, what good will my life be to me? Here's a mother talking concerning a son's choice of a life partner. She says, Rebecca says, if Jacob chooses inaccurately, in fact, if he takes a wife of the daughters of the sons of Heth, she says, I might as well die. What good is my life to me? She says, I will be weary of my life. And you see that the word weary or tired is the Hebrew word kus. And it literally means loathed, be disgusted. She's saying, I will be utterly revulsed, disgusted, internally loathed, sick, revulsed to the point of vomiting if this boy chooses inaccurately. Can you see how CDC this woman is? You know why she is so passionate? God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's choice of a wrong woman could mess up years of patriarchal dealings with them. Imagine all that God did in Abraham, Isaac, and now Jacob is on the scene. Everything could be aborted through one choice of an inaccurate partner. Listeningly, <laughs> look at all the young people here. All the unmarried too. It's a serious to me. I've taken the time before we go on to something else. The Lord said to me, do not proceed beyond this point until in every single one of your people, it's a principle that you are the scribe, like Ezra was, but you must inscribe the law on the heart and the, the mind, such that in whatever context they are, the principle will always abide. Think about how serious Rebecca is. She says, I will be sick to the point of vomiting if you choose inaccurately the wrong boy. We love you. That's why we are so passionate and protective over you. Amen? Let me just say this. If you function in this way, God has got a partner for you somewhere. There's a man and a woman waiting for you. So what does Isaac do? The father. Look at the next verse. Verse 28. Chapter 28 of, and verse 1. Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and did what? Say charged. I said like charged. So the mother expresses how that She'll be sick and the experience could even be equated to death if this boy chooses the wrong partner. The father then calls the boy. What does the father do? Young man, I charge you. Everyone say charge. What does he charge him? And he said, you will not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. You will not. I like Jacob's stance. He says, brew, come here. This is not up for negotiation. If you want to be engrafted in this thing called patriarchal blessing, and if you want to play a vital role in carrying on the legacy of your great-grandfather Abraham, thou shalt not take a wife from the daughters of Canaan. But I like what the word means. Look at the word charged in the Hebrew. It means, everyone say, sawah. I like the Say sawah. It literally means this, I order you. I direct you. I command you. And I like this, it's the setting forth 
of a rule or a principle, and I put in brackets here, alludes to inscribing a law as a warning system within him. Right? He, Jacob, when, you know, we can just read it, yes, my boy, I charge you. But in the Hebrew, what it means is, I lay, he's saying, I lay the principle down as an indelible inscription. I inscribe it upon you, my son. I charge you. You will not go there. In fact, I do it as a warning system. If you do go there, you're going to hear sirens go off, alarm bells. Warning that you must not transgress. You know, have you ever felt when you're transgressing God's law, your body can even shake? Hey, I felt it. I'm about to enter or maybe yield to some temptation. I feel so uncomfortable. It's like an alarm system. Why? Because you know, your body knows, you're about to do something that the inscribed law of God prohibits you. Hmm? You feel this awkwardness, almost a fear hits you. Hmm? Did Jacob obey? I like what it says, verse 7, Jacob obeyed his father and mother. And you know what obey means? Everyone say Shama. In the Hebrew, it doesn't just mean yes, he, he listened to them. The word Shama means to, to listen, sensing the urgency in the sound of the voice. Listen to me carefully, brethren. I hope you are sensing the urgency in the sound of my voice. It's not just a command. To, to listen and sensing the seriousness in the urgency in the sound of the voice and then to make a just decision. The other son, his twin brother, what did he do? Check the scripture out, verse 8 and 9. So Esau saw that the daughters displeased his father, Isaac. And Esau went to Ishmael and married beside the wives that he had. Mahalalat, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebioth. The other son, it says, when he saw that the, these daughters displeased his father, he went to them and he married them. The one son is charged, the law is inscribed, and even though he might have feeling some preference, but the principle protected him, the other son, and you know what? It's not like Esau just fell because of his flesh. It said he saw what displeased his father, so he deliberately goes and marries the daughters, I believe, to bring disappointment, anger. It's almost like an act of resentment, an act of rebellion, an act of defiance, knowing that what you're going to do is going to hurt your dad. But I'm doing it to bring him injury. When he saw, that's why the Bible says, you know, Esau, the Bible, I got it to turn over on the same page, sorry. Hebrews 12 and verse 15, it says it's about him. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled, that there be no what? Immoral, James uses the word fornicator, immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. Now, the Bible describes Esau in Hebrews 12 
as immoral. King James uses the word, he was a fornicator. He despised his birthright. Come on church, look at me. How many of you appreciate what you have in God in terms of your birthright? You see, if you despise what you have, you will give this matter scant attention. If, If you know what you have, then this will become a serious issue to you. Knowing that if you choose inaccurately, it could be aborted. Esau, the Bible says, despised his birthright. It should have read the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. Because by right, he was the firstborn. But by virtue of his disposition, he was disqualified. Now we read the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Your disobedience can disqualify you in this matter. It's a very, very serious thing. In fact, if you turn over, the word immoral or fornicator in the Greek is pornos. Immoral. Esau was an immoral fornicator. It's the Greek word pornos. We get the English word pornography from this word pornos. Right? It literally means a warmonger or a male prostitute. You see, Esau opened up himself to choosing a marriage partner based upon his unbridled sexual appetite. Knowing also it's going to bring great injury and hurt to his father. He nevertheless proceeds and he just gives vent to that. I caution you in the spirit. I charge you in the spirit. You will not be indisciplined when it comes to honing in the desires of your flesh. You will be disciplined. Thus saith the Lord to this house, you will not flagrantly disregard your purity um, demand, the purity mandate that God has as an expectation upon this house. The viewing of pornography is illegal in this family. I will, if I smell it, I will deal with it. No immoral or, fornicate, or fornication or fornicator, the scriptures say, no immoral person or fornicator will ever come to a place of inheriting the kingdom of God. It's a very serious thing to me. Young people, you're growing up, your hormones, some of you might be screaming. But let me tell you, as your father in the Lord, there's sufficient grace in this house for you to control your urges. I speak to you lovingly. I speak to you out of deep and serious concern. If you tap into the grace of this house, you will never let your life run away like an unbridled horse. You are well able to control and restrain your passions. Tell your neighbor you are able. And I speak to old and young alike. I love the Father so much. I now no longer try to overcome things. I've outgrown them. Don't overcome, outgrow. Do you love your birthright? You know what Esau? Esau sold his birthright, something precious, for a bowl of lentils. The flesh, the hunger, spoke louder than the esteem for the birthright. He could part with the birthright to have temporary satisfaction for a bowl of soup that will fade away. How little or little do you know what you are giving up every time you submit to the flesh. 
I want to say it again, brethren. Every time you submit to the flesh, you give up something in the spirit. And I want to encourage you. There's great grace and mercy here this evening. I speak like this under command of God. I don't normally speak like this. But I've chosen to represent God at every occasion. And I speak to you lovingly. If you've erred, if, you are, if you've messed up, I say to you again, there is grace and there is mercy from a loving Heavenly Father. I am in the, tonight drawing a line in the Spirit. One day when I stand before God, I can lift up my hands and say, Father, I'm innocent in this matter, for I've told Him. Right? I will not be accountable for the private rebellion of one or two individuals. But as far as setting the temperature for the texture of the house, I'm innocent before you. God mustn't tell you one day you did not tell them. You saw it, you perceived it, discerned it, sniffed it, got a hint at it, and ignored it. And you know, God is speaking like this. And let me just say this. Brothers and sisters, because only brothers have this problem. Next time you're faced with any kind of sexual temptation, you have the power to overcome. Christ in you can cause you to overcome. You are more than able to walk away. You are more than able to switch websites. You are more than able not to search for certain things. You are more than able not to watch specific programs. The Bible says that if you heal to the flesh, the flesh becomes your master. But if you submit your vessels as instruments of righteousness, then you will be the master over sin. Tell your neighbor it's time to master sin. You see, when Ezra saw intermarriage, for him, it's not just a violation of God's law. It's, it's marrying everything that those foreign nations stand for. It's bringing in their culture, their, and for most of them, their, their, their wayward, uh, uh, flagrant lifestyles into the culture of a people that should be ordered and disciplined, set apart for the Lord. Don't mix the seed. Don't dilute Keep the strain pure. Keep the strain holy. I impart grace to you tonight to overcome. You can do it. You can do it. Tell your neighbor you can do it. You can do it. I wish someone, you know, you're blessed to have me speak to you like this tonight. I wish someone could have been as forthright with these matters with us when we were young people. And set us right, right from the start and have a trajectory in God that is a part that is clean, pure, and holy before the Lord. We will be eligible for great use in God. You can do it. Jacob did it. He listened to the urgency and the sound of Jacob's voice. And the next verse says, and he obeyed. His twin brother says, when he saw it displeased his father, he went in. You know the sad thing that Hebrews 12, 15 says? See to it. Everyone say, see to it. To see to it that nobody comes short of the grace of God. That there be no uh, fornicator like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. This thing can make you come short of the grace of God. The very thing, grace which is empowered to, to build you up, you, it can bypass you because of this disposition. Pure house. Everyone say pure house. Pure seed. Pure seed. You know why? 
I know the destiny of this house is got a great future. And God is building solid platforms upon which we can build for the future. Amen? At the bottom of the page, what I want to quickly do is do a symbolic application of the sin of intermarriage. There's a practical side which we must be very, very aware of. Okay? Now, it says, if you go back, I'm not sure if I put the verse down, on page 1, Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. After these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, this is Ezra talking, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with the abominations from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. Now go back to page 4. All those nations listed are symbolically representative of certain principles which must not be part of us. The, the men of Judah and Benjamin marry these foreigners. It's not just marrying a nice, beautiful Amorite or Egyptian. You're bringing the, the religion, the God of that nation into your world. There's mixture. There's religious syncretism, pluralism. You're accommodating the worship of God together with the worship of Molech, together with the worship of Chemosh, together with the worship of Baal, together with the worship of Ra from Egypt. All the foreign gods are coming into your culture and diluting your effectiveness in God. Hmm? I jokingly said to the young people last week, don't marry someone who does not know God because your father is God, the father, their father is Satan, and you're going to have problems from your father-in-law. Hmm? In-laws spiritually will give you big-time problems. Right? Keep, keep the relationships pure. I, I wish we had time. Uh, you must follow Thamo's series on the Elijah, um, the grace of Elijah. He deals with this issue in quite some detail, now presently dealing with it. And whenever we've traveled in Valcom, we dealt with it. And I think this teaching is dovetailing very well with the emphasis that our patriarchal father in the Lord is busy with teaching all over the world. Keep the house pure. Let's go to the Ammonites. What does Ammon mean? Tribal. And tribal alludes to a spirit of democracy, where the rule or the desire of the majority persists. It also highlights the placing of your brother's counsel above that of your father's. This is wrong. Ammon, the Ammonites, Ammon means tribal. You know that Ammon was the second son born to Lot and his daughter. When his daughter had an incestuous relationship with her father, two boys were born. The two boys were Moab and Ammon. These two boys were people, but they would eventually become whole nations and a province. There's a, there's a province of Moab and the province of Ammon. So what started in smallness has now become a major problem, right? Major problem. Ammon means tribal. It alludes to a sectarian mindset where you think tribally. Think tribally, you only think our, us. It's us and them. It's any kind of sectarian thinking. And that we want to dispel in this house. When you come into this house, and that's why I started the service like we did today.
Get to know each other. Even change your seat if you have to. There's a whole lot of young people, a whole lot of new people here with us. Get to know the new people. Don't stay in your closed circle. Go out of your comfort zone. Because if you think tribally, tribally is only me, myself, our family, and nobody else. And that's the spirit of the Ammonites. Right? It also relates to, it includes the spirit of democracy, where the majority rule. And you know in a democratic system, the rule of the people, of the majority, persists. But it, the rule and the expectation or the desire of the majority might not always be the will of God. So theocracy is always above democracy. Right? And the spirit, the tribal spirit in Ammon has the rule of brothers with the majority rule. And I want to encourage you. Sometimes you have to, if the view of the majority with which you associate and mix with and live with even, is a totally opposed to God's law. You have to choose God's law over and above the majority thinking of the people you're even living or associating with. And these could be your brothers in the Lord, but if the view of the majority violates what is true to principle, you must opt for out of the Ammonite thinking and subscribe to what God decides on the matter. Not so? You can't have a family meeting and say, oh, that person offended us. Let's all not forgive him. Ah, we stand together. We won't forgive him. There must be someone with some sense there that can stand up and say, no, it might, this might be the majority thought, but it's totally antagonistic to the will of God. God's expectation is that we should forgive. So the Ammonite spirit is always tribal, it's sectarian, it's democratic. Also, it's where the view of the brother supplants the view of the, of the father. And that's dangerous. I won't have time to go into the details here. I'm just giving you... Now to marry. Some men of Judah married that spirit. And they bring all these mentalities into the nation. It's that what Ezra is fighting. It's not just fighting two people loving each other and you from another nation. No, it's what you represent that you're bringing into the camp. There's a law in Deuteronomy which says no Ammonite or no Moabite will ever stand in the assembly of God's people. God made it clear. Israel knew the law because he was a scribe in the law. When he comes and he sees this, he deals with it sternly. Right? Look at the next one quickly. Moab, you know what Moab means? Moab means what father? It's a spirit that despises the need for fathering. And again here I want to encourage you. You cannot keep intimate alliance with people that despise the need for legitimate, authentic spiritual fathering. Thirdly, the Canaanites. Canaan means merchant, trader, or, or trafficker. It's an allusion to people that buy and sell. Merchant, trader, trafficker. So some men married the women of Canaan. So what's the spiritual application it alludes to those ruled and controlled by the spirit of mammon, issues of greed, materialism, etc. It also indicates, listen carefully, the sin of Canaan. Remember Canaan unco uncovered his father Noah's sin? Right? Ham, and then Canaan was cursed because of it, remember? Um, now, Ham did it. There's a whole lot of theories around that. 
whether it was Ham or Canaan. I'm not going to go into the details of that now. The point is, Canaan suffered the curse uh, of Noah because of this. The uncovering of his father's nakedness. What does that mean for you and I today? If your father has a weakness, it's your duty to cover it and not to expose it. To expose your father's weakness in a deriding, mocking, or judgmental fashion is to have the spirit of Canaan working with him. And for that he was cursed. Let's say I'm your spiritual father and I have a weakness and you perceive it. What will be your immediate response? Your immediate response should be, I cover it. I don't expose it. I don't talk flagrantly about it. I will seek to redeem. If opportunity affords, I will speak to my father um, if allowance is made and seek to assist him to remedy the situation. Amen? But there shouldn't be this flagrant exposure of the weaknesses of your father. You know what that tends amount to? Dishonor and disrespect. And it has a curse attendant with it. The Hittites, on page 5 quickly. The Hittites. Um, Hittite means the same as Hith. It means annoyance, dread, or fear. This speaks to those who operate by intimidation, exploitation, and fear tactics. Right? Don't, be, don't find intimate alliance and association with those who are manipulative, intimidating, and exploitive. Some people just live on the fear that they instill in others. And they operate by intimidation. Right? That kind of spirit will not be tolerated in the assembly of Israel. The Perizzites... Perizzites mean villages, open, without walls, rustic, and it also alludes to somebody squattering. But the predominant meaning is a villager and without walls. So it alludes to those without walls, whose disobedience makes them vulnerable to enemy attacks. Also those with no fixedness, no sense of permanency. You are always squatting here and there. You don't have your own home. You don't have your own local church. We see you now, we don't see you again. Wonder where are you? Squatting here, squatting there. No walls, totally vulnerable. Right? That kind of person must not be entertained as your intimate association. They also are villagers, they have a village mentality. Smallness as opposed to the corporate kingdom focus. The only concern is for village life, not for the global state of affairs. Egyptians. Some of the men married Egyptian women. The meaning of Egyptian is oppressor or double straits. It speaks of a spirit. You know what Egypt did? They held Israel in slavery for 430 years, remember? And when they were released. So anything Egyptian is this. A spirit that brings bondage such that there is misalignment of purpose and the eroding of a true sonship identity. The Egyptian spirits holds you in bondage so that your purpose is misaligned and your identity is eroded. You're building bricks, but you're not called to build bricks to make pyramids. You're functioning as a slave, yet you are a son. So there's two things. Misalignment of what you should do and a lack of understanding as to who you are. Some people in your associations 
in your, in your friends, circle of friends. Sometimes they will guide you as to the wrong purpose and erode as to who you truly are in terms of your sonship identity in Christ. You have to institute a divorce in the spirit. There are some people that you must always love, but you're going to have to leave. You, there are some people, you're not allowed to hate anybody. Please me get that right. Tell your neighbor, you're not allowed to hate anybody. Right? But you know what Jesus said to the young rich ru- ruler? He walked away because Jesus said to him, go sell all your possessions, p- possessions and give your money to the poor. And the Bible says, the rich young ruler was sad at that saying, and he left, for he had much possessions. He did not become a follower or disciple of Jesus. Jesus said to him, I invite you, come follow me. But the proviso is, sell all you have, come follow me. He was sad at that saying, at the expectation, and he left. And one of the gospels says, I think it was Mark's gospel says, and Jesus looked at him, loved him, but let him go. There's some people you have to love, but let go. In their going, you don't hate them. Always love. Just be aware of this church. There are some people you are not called to walk closely with, but you will always love them. You will always love them. We hate the sin. We don't hate the sinners. We love the people. We don't like what they stand for and what they do, but we will always love people. Amen? I'm talking here to your bed, marriage bed partners. I'm not talking actual marriage. When I say marriage bed partners, I'm, I'm speaking symbolically. Those that you intimately associate with, even on the friendship level. This thing of intermarriage. Hmm? Who were the Jebusites? Another group that the men of, of, of Judah also married. Let me give you some history. It means treading down or a place trodden down. They were actually descendants of Canaan. Do you remember, for those of you that know your Bible, they were the last enemy David conquered before he ruled at Zion. He ruled in Hebron for seven and a half years and he went up to take he was about to take Zion and become king of all Israel. And who stands as the obstacle to prevent him from establishing his royal throne at Jerusalem? It was this group of people called the, the Jebusites. And you know what they did to David? They mocked David. They said, who is this David? In fact, we will send the blind and the lame from among us to fight you. And they will deal. They, they diminished and devalued uh, David. David obviously defeated them. Not him, Joab. David didn't attack them. David opened an open invitation to his mighty men and said, oh, Guys, who wants to deal with this one? <laughs> who wants to take this? And Joab said, Yes, I will. And he defeated them by the water shaft. Remember the whole principle. Do you know the Jebusites were one of the few people not conquered by Joshua? It says when Joshua conquered, it says, But he did not defeat the Jebusites and he accommodated them. David would rout them in his time, doubt with them. By the time you get to Nehemiah, Israel is still accommodating that spirit by, by marrying that spirit. That spirit speaks, it says it's, it means treading down or a place trodden down. Who were they descendants of? Come on, talk to me, I just told you. Canaan. Canaan represents a dishonoring spirit towards spiritual 
fathering. By the time his descendants come on the scene, which are the Jebusites, the spirit of dishonor had matured strongly in a people called the Jebusites. Let me just say this to you. If you accommodate after all the warnings I have given you in the past three weeks, if you still accommodate a disrespectful, dishonoring, unbridled speech, attitude, your life will be a life trodden down. You will continue to live substandardly to what God has in store for you. Hasn't God been warning us about the principle of honor recently? Amen. You know, if, if I always tell people, you can mess up in ten different ways, but please don't mess up in the sin of dishonor. To dishonor God's servants is to dishonor God. Don't cross that line, because that's got grave consequences. Amen? Hallelujah. And on each other also. Then lastly, the Amorites. The Amorites means mountaineer, a talker. Tell your neighbor, stop talking. <laughs> a talker or a slayer. Now combining the three nuances of this word, let's just summarize it to one sentence I wrote. This denotes those who slay others with their negative, carnal, judgmental speech that is rooted in an elevated, in elevated pride and arrogance. You're a mountaineer, so you think you're above everybody else. And you slay people left, right, and center with your carnal speech because you think you're above them. Right? Now, you might not be responsible, but your associations might be. Hmm? And I want to encourage you. I sense the Lord saying, refine relationships. God is bringing reformation to our relationships. Everyone say reformation. So let me just, let me just quickly summarize and, and close. Ezra administrates this separation from inaccurate joinings. And there was widespread cooperation with everybody. They realized this is the day of the Lord. But there were a few dissenting individuals. Look on page 6. Where I got important things to note. The first thing is the dissenting individual. To dissent is the opposite of consent. To consent is agree. To dissent is you disagree and you go against the grain of what God was trying to do in the nation. Look at the verse. It says, uh, chapter 10 and verse 15. Only Jonathan, the son of Asael, and Jahaziah, the son of Tigvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shebetia, the Levite, supporting them. But the exiles did so. And Ezra the priest selected men who were heads of fathers' households for each of their fathers' households, all of them by name. And they convened on the first day of the tenth month to investigate this matter of intermarriage. My, my, my principle that I want to leave with you is this. There was widespread cooperation. says the exiles did do so. But there were four individuals that opposed, Neo, that opposed Ezra in this whole process. And their names are mentioned. The four that opposed Ezra did not impede the process. The four that rebelled did not stop the process from going forward. The Bible is silent as to what happened to them. But I think they would reap the consequences of their, their own rebellion. 
I, I raised this point. In fact, these notes are hot off the press. Because they were just rolled off like half an hour before the service. I inserted this because I felt, I felt a burden of the Lord midday today. That I need to insert this. The Lord said to me, just to warn everyone, not to dissent in this season. Don't go against the grain of what God is trying to do. For if you do, it's fine, you'll be left alone. But it will not stop what God's going to do corporately. The sad reality is that you'll be left trying to deal with the repercussions of your own rebellion. When the whole group would have gone forward to a place of new purity, of refined relationships. Amen? So tell your neighbor, don't dissent, consent. I say this lightheartedly. I'm trying to be nice tonight. I, I'm, I'm being very serious in my spirit. The Lord says, don't kick against the pricks. Don't go opposite the grain of what I'm trying to entrench. Second point, everyone say urgency and quickness. To obey. Verse 7. Look at this verse 7. They made a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the exiles that they should assemble at Jerusalem and whoever would not come within three days, according to the counsel of the leaders and the elders, all his possessions should be forfeited and he himself excluded from the assembly of the exiles. You know, this was serious here. Do you know what this meant? Let's say I married an Amorite, a talker, a slayer. And this, this, this command was given by Ezra. If you are not here to sort this matter out at Jerusalem within three days, what's going to happen to you? We take your property away, we confiscate it. And you will not be numbered as an Israelite amongst the exiles. That is, you are outside of the blessing attendant with the nation, the patriarchal order. You're outside of the economy of favor, outside of the economy of grace. This was very very important. All of you are here tonight are here by divine appointment. Have you feel God's been talking to you tonight? God, I'm speaking to myself. God's speaking to me also. And because you are here, I say to you by the Spirit of the Lord, God wants you blessed. God wants you favored. God wants the best for you. God wants you numbered amongst His people. Don't be dispossessed of your property, your allotment in the Spirit. Don't be dispossessed of your firstborn rights. Don't be dispossessed of what God has in store for you. But treat the matter with great urgency. Hmm? I know some of you will have to do, make certain steps. Maybe talk to certain people. But don't accommodate any of the spirits we have mentioned in your world. If there's a separation to be done, do so wisely. I'm talking about separation from friends, from associations. But don't accommodate these spirits within the fabric of your own heart. And you know what's amazing to me? It's amazing. Julian and I were playing in the week. We were, I was playing Ezra 7, 8, 9, and 10. The chapters on audio Bible from different versions. And it was playing aloud in the office. And every time it came to um, chapter 10. In chapter 10, from verse 18 to 42, is a list of every leader who had offended in this matter. So I, you know, when, when it's read in the audio Bible, and these guys are deep voices, the readers, and so and so is mentioned, and so. And we get the time, hey, it's a long list. This is long, man. 
from verse 18 to verse 42. Why would God waste space in the Bible by listing the names of individuals that we don't even know? If I was writing the Bible and say, and so many men, 42 of them were some, whatever, erred in this matter. Leaders, leading others astray. You know why God takes the time to list the people's names? Why I believe. I wrote as a heading, the specificity of God's dealings. God's going to be very personal. God's going to be very specific in this season. Brethren, I can't tell you, I implore you. You see, Achan thought he could hide the accursed thing in his tent. He thought he could hide in the bigness, the massiveness of Israel. And still sin privately, nobody will find me out. But God whittled down from the whole nation, took one tribe from that tribe, took one clan from that clan of the several families, chose one family, chose Achan's family. You cannot hide, brethren. God's going to be very personal. God's going to be very specific in the present season. There's no space to hide from an all-seeing God. There's a list of offending brethren listed at the end of chapter 10. When you read these verses in your fasting over the next three days, read the list. Please, I encourage you. You know what we do with genealogies? We read our Bibles. We start, oh, okay, we go right to the end of it. And we jump all the names. No, just take the time to read it. And let the truth sink deeply within your heart. Turn to your neighbor and say, God is dealing with you. Now, you said it to each other, so no one's... <laughs> you know how I feel? I feel that God's got his number. God's got my number. God is shining his spotlight on areas that I need to make amends. Listen carefully. Ezra fasted for safe passage. It's not just for protection. It was for the preservation of the scribal anointing that he was going to bring to Israel. Tell your neighbor, what we've just discussed is the scribal grace in action. You see, the scribal grace is not just sufficient to know the law. He knew the law backwards and forwards. But he's now instrumental in helping the people to obey the law. The law is not just inscribed on tablets of stone. He is now inscribing the law into the hearts and the minds of the people. Where there's been transgression, he sets the matter straight. I pray you go home with great humility, with deep repentance. Yes? Yes? You know why? Yes, the verse. Everyone say, grace has been afforded. Ezra 9 verse 8. But now for a brief moment, grace has been shown to us from the Lord our God to leave us and escape remnant and to give us a peg in this holy place that our God may enlighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our bondage. Love this verse eh? in Ezra 9 verse 8. Everyone say grace. You know all that he was doing and would do in chapter 9 and 10, his mind is, this is nothing more than an opportunity for the grace of God to manifest itself. And I, I'm here, this, I'm here to, tonight to tell all of you, there is grace now for you to deal with long-standing breaches. You might have fobbed certain things off, but there is grace now to redeem yourself and your family. I say it again, there is grace now to redeem yourself 
and your family. You might have messed up. Things are wrong. You might be dealing with consequences of your sin now. But I say to you by the Spirit of the Lord, there is grace. There is mercy. Ezra was conscious. He's saying, guys, you know what his heart, if I paraphrase, he's literally saying, hey, let's do this as hard as it's going to be. Because we better do it while grace is attending it. Because there will come a time where if this window of grace passes us by, we're going to have to do it without God's help. But now God is, God is speaking to us. God's alongside us. God is with us. I sense this very strongly. Tell your neighbor, grace is here. Grace is here. And let me just say this. You see, where did the sin go back to? Years before with Solomon started this mess. Ezra's dealing with the matured sin in his day started in Solomon's, in Solomon's time. But he, as a reformer, he says, we can sort the mess up. I don't care how long your family issues have been. I don't care how long you're dealing with certain historical, what you think are curses. But no child of God is cursed. You are blessed. We're going to fast the next three days. And the Lord said to me, I'm very serious about the next three days in my fasting. I'm saying to God, I want certain things wrapped up, sealed up, closed, never to look back again. I'm going to heal the breach as we read from Isaiah 50. I'm going to repair. I'm going to restore. Amen? Grace has been afforded. And I put this verse on um, your WhatsApp, I think, today. Psalm 27 and verse 7. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Be what? Be, Be gracious to me and answer me. When you said, seek my face, my heart said, thy face, O Lord, I will. Notice what David's saying. David's saying to to, to God, God, when you said, seek my face, he said, my, everyone, eat your heart. Not your head. Yeah. Because don't trust this thing. Sometimes this works. I'm talking about what are you feeling inside your spirit right now as you've listened to the word of the Lord. Don't try and, don't try and figure this out rationally in the content of your mind. What is your heart saying? Do you feel that God is calling us? God is saying, seek my face. David said, when you said, seek my face, my heart said, yes, thy face, O Lord, I will seek. Whenever you sense, and this is what I want to teach you, whenever you sense there's the drawing of God to you, don't fob it off. Respond to God. Set yourself in prayer and fasting, in intense Bible study. You know why? God is calling you for a reason. He's not just wooing you and drawing you for no, for no reason. There's always a purpose that God is drawing a man closer to his, to his heart. Amen? In the next three days, I believe, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, we're going to fast corporately. And I want the inscription, or rather the anointing of the scribe, to be the predominant feature of your fast. What is that? To inscribe God's principle as, an, as a warning system, an indelible, irremovable principle. Scar your mind, scar your life, scar your mentality, lay the principle down solidly that you will not accommodate any kind of mixture, any kind of impurity within your life. The next three days will be a consecration fast. Everyone say consecration. 
You know why? If we are not the standard, how can we be used by God to bring resolution to this kind of dilution outside? Not so? And so I appeal to you. We're also going to fast for the next generation. I'm very passionate about the young people, all of our young people. I love you with my whole heart like I love my own sons. You know, I've shared this testimony before. It's still true today as when I said it a few years ago. Whenever I pray for Matthew, Liam, Luke, and Ray, I, let me say, I'll, let me just demonstrate. I'll start, if I say, Lord, I, I thank you for Matthew, my son. Pray that you'd guide him in his studies, that you'd keep him safe as daily as he travels. Pray that he's destined. Lord, and I just thank you for every other young man. It's, it's almost, it comes almost immediately, as I mentioned, Matthew or Liam's name. I quickly go into an every other young man in our congregation. If I'm praying for Ray and every other young lady in our congregation. I, don't, I can never ever pray for my own without mentioning all of our young people. I, pray, I always pray that way. It's pulled into my into the fabric of my spirit. And so I want to encourage you in your fasting to pray for the next generation. How many parents here are serious about the destiny of your kids? I am telling you by the spirit of the Lord, and I'm serious. I'm telling you by God's spirit, there's grace that has been afforded to us as parents to rescue destiny in the next three days. Do not fob this off as just some, a whim or something. Position yourself in prayer. Pray daily for the next generation. Some you're going to save from hell. Some you're, going to, you're just going to consolidate the path of destiny and being used by God in the, the kingdom. Right? The issue of intermarriage. Pray over their destiny. Pray over their choice of a life partner. Hear my heart, brethren. We've got to secure the destiny of our kids. I want us to fast Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday for three days. Ezra fasted for three days, I think. It doesn't say how many days. It just said he fasted at the river Ahava, and they camped for three days. But I, I, I treat this fast seriously. In your fasting, I would like every family, in your family altar every evening, to read through Ezra chapter 7 to verse 10. On Monday, read chapter 7 and 8. On Tuesday, read chapter 8 and 9. And on Wednesday, read chapter 9 and 10. So in the three days, you would have read chapter 8 and 9 twice. Then also, I said in the email to you, I would like parents, if you can, the young people, you're welcome to join in this, to pray in the mornings from a quarter past five to a quarter to six, half an hour. And everybody said, yes. You know, I, I don't want to insist and prescribe your prayer times. I just want us for the next three days to be all be praying at the same time. There's no magic formula in this. I just want everyone to do the same thing more or less. Please don't function legalistically by this, but if you can keep to it, I would really appreciate it. It'll be powerful, eh? How many couples do we have here? All the couples just wave to me like this, pick your hands up. That's one, two, this country, one, two, three, four, uh, five, six, seven, Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay, twelve couples. Wouldn't it be powerful if tomorrow at quarter past five, Clinton and Manolo are up there in Verulam. Honey, it's five o'clock. By the way, set the alarm for five o'clock. So from quarter past five to about quarter past six, my wife and I will get up in our room 
in coming before our God as a joint couple, cementing the future of our kids, saying to the Lord, we are firmly committed to fulfilling your purposes. You are generational God, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. We want to preserve your legacy in them. Amen? We're also going to break long-standing bondages that we've recognized. Breaches that have gone on for long. We're going to seal it, seal the deal in this fast. Amen? I really believe, I want to remind you again, brethren of the verse, grace has been afforded. I say, if Moed and Evie wake up at this and you're praying, and you're praying for your own issues, but please, brethren, in praying for your own issues, think of the church as well. Think of people that may God will burden you with and, and bring someone before the Lord. Pray for another couple in the house. Pray for the young people. Amen. And surely God is going to break through mightily on our behalf. Amen. God's going to break through mightily. I really believe it. Amen. Hallelujah. This is prayer. Father, we bless you. We thank you for this time. Father, we've sat under your word and we submit to your speaking. I pray that you would, like Ezra prayed, give us safe passage on our journey. His was physical, ours is spiritual. As we journey to a place of greater accuracy, represented by Jerusalem, help us, dear Father, to be sober and vigilant in our day. Help us not to entertain mixture of any foreign alien spirits in our associations, our joinings, and our alliances. Help us to separate from the vile, the impure. Help us not to fornicate, to come short of your grace, to be like Esau, who for a moment's satisfaction gave up so much just for a passing gratification of his flesh. Give us grace and empowerment that we might overcome these things. Let the scribal anointing as was on Ezra be on us. As Jacob obeyed the charge of Isaac, as he listened to the sound of urgency in the voice of his father, we too listen to the urgent frequency in the sound that you've echoed from the highest heavens to us tonight. We shama, we obey. I pray great grace over the next two days will, have, will attend families. We're trusting you to heal the breaches of many generations in some contexts. I know, Father, that grace will be afforded in uncanny ways, in unparalleled ways. I bless you, loving Father, for the manner in which you speak to us. You are so loving, so, so caring. You speak firmly as an expression of your love. For this we are deeply grateful. We want to be a pure people. A people set apart for your purposes. So I pray great grace will be our portion as we fast this day. In Jesus name.